Welcome to On the Table, a podcast about board games, card games, and tabletop war games. Welcome back to episode 88 of the On the Table Gaming Podcast. I'm Chase, and today we're joined by Brett Lander, small council radio host and winner of Gen Con 2019. And I guess Brett says this Family Times game event was maybe the closest thing to the Gen Con tournament as possible. Would you maybe say you successfully defended your title? Uh, you know, it's that's an interesting question, and I'm I uh it's something that I've kind of asked, but uh, so far as I can tell, um, I guess since Simon sent us the, their products and their official sponsorship, right? and uh, it was Gen Con weekend, I think, I think it counts as Gen Con at least a little bit. I um, mean, there's, there's that's the closest thing you can possibly get, right? You get a sponsored event the weekend of not too far from. So I think we can go along this. Do we just get rid of the Gen Con 20? Just say Gen Con, what are we, reigning Gen Con champion, consecutive Gen Con champion? <laughs> that sounds that sounds good. Um, wow. Yeah. I know. Crazy, right? That is crazy. It also means it's it's been a year. It has been a year, and it's been a long year, and a lot has happened in a year for this game. Um, and, and by a lot, it's a lot of good things. I'm really, really happy with the state of the game. I'm happy with the growth that we've seen, and I'm continue to be happy with this community as a whole. I mean, I think we're going in 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 the right direction here. But before we get into some of the specifics of this past event, you know, being someone who's identified as a kind of competitive player, right? I think you stand out there as one of the the leading voices in the competitive scene. Is there any pressure that you face when preparing for big events like this? Um, I think most of the pressure is is self created. I feel a little bit of a a little bit of pressure because I, I want to do well. I'm competitive, but I, I don't <laughs> think I'm competitive to a flaw where it makes me like a, a jerk or any, anything like that, but I'm definitely competitive. And uh, so I like to, I like to do well in these types of events, but uh, I think for the most part, some of the guys in the community wanted to see me run Targaryens, but I just, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm not comfortable enough with their deck and uh, their, they seem to just be missing a couple of pieces for some of the game modes that I was playing, but uh, they're still pretty new too. That's fair, and that's fair. And the other problem was I, I on the hobby side, I really struggle with fielding a completely unpainted army, and I struggle with <laughs> the fact that we couldn't get any unsullied swordmasters there in Indy. So we gotcha. We made the choice to allow proxies because of the the availability issue and we wanted mm -hmm. to see targaryens play but uh nobody ended up running targaryens at all so oh wow interesting does that pressure carry over into relaxed games as well like in your local scene when you're playing just you know showing up on a random night do you feel like you often have to be testing out you know more competitive lists or do you ever get a chance to just kind of kick back and run something just for funds oh there is a, there's definitely no pressure in the in the local games and some of the tts games i pick up i uh Generally, I ask my opponent if there's something that they want to see. Like, have you seen this type of Stark list? Have you seen uh, this Targaryen list? Have you seen this from Free Folk? What are you most uh, challenged by? And that's that's what I'll run to uh, to give you an opportunity to face that. And I can kind of talk you through what I'm thinking and, and what's happening. And, and maybe you can become more familiar with that. And, and I feel like it's a great way to not only uh, give other people a chance to grow and develop their skills, but it also really helps reinforce your own skills, right? If you're having to explain what you're doing as you go through. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think a lot of people saw when Chris and I did the summer slaughter bat rep, mm -hmm. which was obviously just a really casual game. We pretty much literally explained to each other 
out loud every decision we were making. And well, if I, I want to do this, but I'm afraid of this and you've done this to create this pressure. And so that was a really good job because I was going to do this. And I think those types of games are the, the most fun. They're good for people to watch. And it definitely helps both players learn because every, every person that you play has a different perspective on the game and every person has their own way of playing and, but they also have something to teach you. So uh, absolutely. Those casual, no pressure, fun games are my absolute favorite because I have no issue telling them exactly what I'm thinking. And it's, it's good for everybody involved. And that battle report with Chris uh, Tran from Sunday Slaughter, that's an absolutely amazing style of filming because when you're talking it through, it's great to watch, right? Like you sort of mentioned for people walking by even, it's just great to be able to spectate that. So that that's phenomenal. We'll link that in the show notes. But let's jump in and talk about this event then. So big picture here. So um, what was the Laughter's Poison to Fear event? How long was it? What did it? How many rounds? Where was it? It was located at Family Time Games in Indianapolis, um, which is Shane Pretty's store. Um, Shane has been a pillar of the Song of Ice and Fire community since the game dropped. Um, I used to go there and hang out and play some... Uh, games workshop games but i they they pulled me into a song of ice and fire <laughs> shortly after it dropped and uh i pretty well got hooked but shane has been there from the beginning since the beginning and uh his store is really really big and uh so he was willing to open up the store we we planned this for a while uh we were having to monitor the covid situation and what restrictions uh our state and city had in place and uh happily we were we were able to maintain that 50 person limit with masks. And uh, so we ended up setting up the tables six feet apart the night before. Uh, Shane is a little OCD. So we're literally measuring these tables and moving the battle mats. Like there has to be <laughs> six feet in between each person. And if this person's standing here, we got to make sure it's still six feet. So um, it wasn't as bad as it might seem though. For the most part, the, the event was still, what you would expect from a tournament, just everybody was wearing masks. That was the mm -hmm. only difference. That's awesome. And so how many, uh, it was spread over two days, but really mostly the first day was the actual event and the second day was like a team event? Yeah, sorry, I guess you asked that and I didn't address it. The first day, yeah, we started with the, the four round tournament and we were, we were actually set to go five rounds if needed because- Oof, um, That's a long day, sir. <laughs> that is such a long day. And as it turned out with uh, 22 people, it ended up working out perfectly to where um, one of the players that was 3-0, and I believe, went into a game against a person that was 3-1. and mm -hmm. And the person who was 3-1 and beat the person who was 3-0. and So when I was able to beat the other unbeaten, I was the only unbeaten guy, so we didn't have to play another round. We had a clear one person was 4-0, and followed by everybody else at 3-1. and So... Happily, I think for everybody, we only had to play four rounds because I think pretty much everybody was mentally taxed because it was a very, very <laughs> um, competitive event in the sense that the players who were there were all great players. Um, we did have uh, the new girl, Rachel, but even for as few games as she had, uh, she had a very good grasp of the game. And she was I mean, she didn't get blown out in any game. Uh, she she did a really nice job. So. I would say 22 competitors and, and 22 of them were, were competitive. So it was, it was tough. There were no easy wins for anybody. Well, that's amazing. That is a long day though. Five rounds. Oh my gosh. 
Do you feel ever that like fatigue in later rounds? Like you're getting to your championship rounds here and you've been standing or, or just thinking mentally taxing yourself, you know, for a while. Do you ever feel that fatigue when you're in game? I do. Um, uh, it was recorded. So um, I'll probably get a little bit of flack from the community, <laughs> but my final game, I was so, I was sharp going into the first few rounds, but after having to face Shane, who ended up in third place, mm-hmm. immediately followed by Craig, who ended up in second place, and fighting the free folk in round one, I was so mentally taxed going into that start game. Mm-hmm. I actually missed a, uh, I missed something with Tyrion when I played Cunning Ploy and I controlled the letter. I completely forgot that my opponent wasn't allowed to play cards. Uh, oh. I, caught, I, I caught it after the fact. And I, I had counterplotted the card that he played, but we decided, you know, mutually between the two of us that it would be kind of cheeky if I took his card back because then I knew what card he had. Right. He knew, he knew that I had a counterplot. So we decided to just play it as the, as the mistake that it was. He drew out a counterplot and I drew out one of his cards. So Yeah, those things happen, right? But that's a, that's a lot of game time and it's hard to stay on top of those things then when you're starting to get fatigued. It is. And it's, it's like a... Uh, I don't really know how to put it other than just, yeah, you feel like your brain is, is kind of mush. <laughs> it's, you've been thinking so hard. And I think it was Michelle Rumsbums, the, your, your buddy, the free folk guy. <laughs> uh, I, I think he was the one who wore his, uh, his Fitbit. And oh, yes. Throughout the course of a game or throughout the course of a tournament day, he, what was it, three or four times the amount of calories yes. that he normally burns? He burned because of that. Uh, self-inflicted sauna that you're you know you're sitting there physically mentally making yourself physically tired it's crazy so let's maybe jump into specifics and you kind of already hinted at this so then what did you run i i did go back and run lannisters um there were several reasons that i did that um i have been primarily running starks on tabletop simulator Mm -hmm. um i've always had a little bit of love for starks and I really wanted to get them on the table, but I was concerned that uh, with some of the community feeling like Starks are a little bit too strong right now. Um, again, not saying that I was destined to win this event, but I felt like if I did win it with Starks, it was kind of an asterisk because they've been really winning so many of these TTS events. Mm-hmm. So I talked to you. and <laughs> you met- <laughs> I don't want to get the blame of this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, blame it on Chase. It's oh, all no. Chase's fault. But you, you mentioned in our, in our conversation that uh, maybe I should try to defend with Lannisters. And uh, Lannisters are a lot of fun. I hadn't played them in a while, so I just decided to run them. Uh, it was actually my very first time um, competitively playing with poor fellows, and I can't say that I was anything but impressed. That conversation is really interesting because you have so many options. You are like, what should I run? I can run this. And I was like, that's really strong. You're really good with them. You're like, I could run Night's Watch. And it's like, well, yeah, actually, you're you're really good with Night's Watch. (laughs) So yeah, you have a man of many talents. You've definitely shown a lot of master of the game. I'm excited to see what what comes down the line for Targs and, and uh, and how maybe you end up picking those up in the future as a more they more into your competitive stable here but um so you know you won last year's gen con with Tyrion, right and yep. and that was your main that was you know both lists i believe right yeah yep this year you're running Tyrion as well what was the thought process going into that 
Like why, what, what makes this commander so strong still? Or has nothing changed? Nothing has changed to, to some extent, but at the same time, something has changed. Because I made the, the decision to swap out my Lannister guard, which was my all-time bunker for Tyrion. Like, right. it was guard with Tyrion. It, it's going to sound crazy, but I have, I have determined, and I, I'm no math cruncher or no numbers cruncher. This is just my intuition and, and my experience with the game. Tyrion and Poor Fellows is probably better than Tyrion and Guardsmen because the Guardsmen are so susceptible to panic that mm-hmm. they're taking auto wounds from panic and they can be panicked repeatedly. And their oh. three plus defense doesn't really matter at that point um, if they're taking, you know, two to four wounds every time they feel panic because it's not, it's not consistent to pass a seven plus morale base but then with any modifiers it starts to get harder and harder right and with dire wolves on the prowl uh the poor fellows felt like a really good choice not just for um their resistance to panic but i figured if dire wolves got behind my lines while Tyrion is kind of just standing there directing the battlefield if he gets a wolf in his flank the poor fellows can just spend a faith token and automatically kill a wolf so <laughs> yeah plus being able to restore those wounds if you're controlling the tactic zone which is probably one that you'll be going for yeah yeah they they restore three when they activate if you control the wealth they restore d3 no matter what and but yes i was playing i was playing the wealth zone to make sure that Tyrion's bunker stayed alive because they definitely everybody took their shots at Tyrion trying to get him off the board but i think a lot of people were or my two opponents, I guess I should say, were they were surprised at just how survivable those poor fellows are. And as I said, I was nothing but impressed. So anybody who's playing Tyrion, you should really consider putting him in the poor fellows. What did your list look like? Do you, you think you can give us a rundown of the units you ran just briefly? Of course. Yeah. Um, the Tyrion list, which again was my primary list, it was the one I felt the most comfortable with, was Tyrion in a unit of poor fellows, uh, Gregor the Mountain That Rides, one unit of Knights of Castle Rock, one unit of Pyromancers, one unit of Cutthroats, uh, Tywin, Varys, and Pycelle. And then the secondary list, which was the, the High Sparrow list, was uh, Knights of Castle Rock, uh, two units of those, Gregor the Mountain That Rides, uh, a unit of Poor Fellows with no attachments, a unit of Poor Fellows with Preston, uh, Walder Frey, Tywin and the Sparrow. And out of the games you played, which of those lists did you end up using the most? I split it 50-50. Oh, um, okay. I did the High Sparrow in Dark Wings, Dark Words and Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just, not just for the scenario, but they happened to be the, I felt like they were the better list to bring against the opponent that I was playing. Uh, the High Sparrow played really well into the, uh, the Harma Circus is what I, oh, what yeah. I dubbed the list. Harma, Harma and all the bears. And uh, so the High Sparrow had a, <laughs> had a better chance uh, because that Tyrion list is so glass cannon mm-hmm. and uh, there's just no way to account for all those bears. So I needed the, the panic resistance that the, that the Sparrow list offered and also I needed that, that jerk in the chair to be able to, to poach some bears for me in round one and round two. And that's a, a really interesting part of the game is building not only a list that you're comfortable running on scenarios into different armies, but also then being able to pair that with another list that you can choose 
should the the need arise during a tournament. When you build out your list for events, do you look to pair based on being like, here's my most comfortable list, and then like, here's what I'll run if, you know, is it, is it like an A and a B list where the B list is really like your backup list? So you're like, you might go the whole event and never even run it, but you need it for this scenario. Or do you find that you often have like two lists that you're like very equally comfortable in running? Prior to this tournament, every single tournament that I've ever been to, I've I've built my A list with a B list as a backup, but I've never ever actually used the two list format. I've always stuck with the A list throughout the whole event with Lannisters, with Night's Watch, and even in the NRG event, I did six rounds all with uh, Rob Stark. So this is the first time I've actually leaned into the secondary list and. I think feel? <laughs> uh, it, it felt really nice. Honestly, it, um, I hadn't taken advantage of that two list format and it's something I kind of harp on when I'm talking to gentlemen in the community about building these lists, you know, use mm -hmm. your two list format, make one list, fill a gap that the other list doesn't. And I felt like I had cheated myself out of that by just running with the list that I was the most comfortable with. But moving forward, I will absolutely do the list a list B. And I think, I think it's exactly, there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can view the scenarios and you can build, well, this list is for that scenario. That's one way to do it. I think the better way to do it, though, is you've got one list that does what you feel like is just about everything. And then you've got a secondary list, and that secondary list needs to fill a gap that that first list doesn't have. So in this case, my Tyrion list, I felt comfortable taking just about everything. But in the case of something that was going to be causing severe uh, panic attacks or uh, uh, just a high number of attacks. I wanted the High Sparrow in there because um, his ability to heal, his ability to block hits. So this is that was the mentality I went through with building that list, was the Tyrion is the all-comer, the High Sparrow is the list that's going to be my specialist list that's going to help me against opponents who are just going to crush this Tyrion list. So I know in the past you've talked about how when you're building a list, there are certain criteria you look for and a certain language you use in kind of looking and examining a list that you're building. So you've talked about having control or elements of mobility, defense, healing, damage potential. You know, you got your flex sort of specialist support units and then multipliers. And uh, I always thought it was really interesting that you kind of talk about trying to fill a lot of these gaps. And then, you know, I look at a list uh, some of the lists you're taking here, and and it seems like some of them are more glass cannony, like it skews more heavily there. Um, does that just sort of speak to your style of play, or should should players be thinking about really trying to just like maximize offense? Like you know, there's some people. Lockie Carter's come on here and talked about how he's a big fan of like combined arms, where he wants to have a little bit of everything. You know, ranged units, cavalry, infantry, um, and I and I see that here too with you, but. Um, you know, when you get your your more offensively oriented list, it seems like you're kind of really doubling down on the offense over defense. Or is that an accurate representation? That is an accurate reputation. Um, and I looked at that Tyrion list and I liked it, but I didn't like it at the same time. But I, I decided to go with it. I had initially run crossbows with Preston. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And is, that would give a little bit more of that flex role. Yeah. And this is probably a conversation familiar from our podcast last year because <laughs> I I literally switched the list the day before, the night what? before. What? Oh, my God. <laughs> without, without even trying it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to run the Pyromancers. I'm just going to do it, and it's going to work or it's not going to work. And just, I guess, 
uh, as you said, fortune maybe favors the bold because it <laughs> it worked out because the pyromancers were so key in my game against Shane. Uh, I think if I had crossbows instead of the instead of the pyromancers, you might be interviewing Shane right now. Actually, oh. <laughs> he's gonna start stocking up on those. <laughs> Absolutely, the pyromancers. They if you can make them, if you can get them to work, they are so unbelievably devastating. Uh, they're just so hard to answer to. And yet they are a, a unit that if you do misplay, they're pretty flimsy. Um, yeah. So in your style of play, right, when people are at home listening to this and maybe they're competitive players or maybe they just want to start building better lists. Um, you know, one of the things that can be challenging is like how much of it is the list and how much of it is the player. Right. And we've already kind of hinted at that. You play a lot of factions, a lot of lists in a lot of styles. Um, you know how when. Would, so this list is sort of built for a glass cannon, like do a lot of damage up front. Um, how should how can players um, maybe approach emulating that style? Like, what are some of the keys to being able to pilot a list like that well? Um, I'm going to be honest without uh, without trying to sound uh, pretentious, <laughs> but I think I think that Tyrion list that I ran in particular is one where uh, a person might try to kind of copy paste that list and it might fall flat on its face. Right. Um, I think the biggest key to running a list like that is patience and it's seriously calculated risks, like super high risk, high reward. Because um, in my game, I think it was against Shane, I dumped a whole five card hand. And it's oh, just, God. it's not something a lot of players are comfortable doing. So I did my envelope draw and then I saw the five cards. I knew I could live without them, and I dumped them just to be able to redraw again to get myself the, the cards that I need for Tyrion. And it speaks for, for Tyrion to say that you, you have to have those cards, and if you don't, if you have a, if you have a plan that you want to, to push forward with, but you don't have the cards to support it, you have to not be afraid to back things up and wait for the right moment. If you if you push forward, you get impatient, and and you try to make things work when the when everything's not lined up. That's where it's going to fall. Um, I think you have to have the patience to maybe even let yourself get behind a little bit, and and then you're able to make that that comeback when you when things start to fall in place. That's such a tough thing sometimes to get a sense of. It's like almost just based on game experience because you only have six rounds. The game is not that long. And yet, sometimes when you watch games, you'll see that they're like over by like turn three or four and having that comfort to be able to be like, okay, I can, I can slow things down. I've still got, you know, two, three more rounds to do stuff. It's really tough. And um, I wish there was a way that I, that I could explain it in a, in a, in a small amount of words to make, <laughs> make anybody who's listening understand. But the, I guess the, the, my piece of advice is you, you just have to be patient sometimes. You have to be. If you've got everything that's working out, and it's your time to attack, then you, then you go forward and you, and you make your moves to attack. Um, if it's not that time, you're not, you're not doing yourself any favors to try to make things meet. If you're relying on, well, this will work if my opponent fails all these dice rolls, and if this happens and if this happens, that's probably not the best, the best plan. You need to have a, a backup plan and then a backup to the backup. So um, sometimes, yeah, it's best to just it's best to just wait. 
So then on that subject of glass cannons, maybe we'll kind of stick with that. Um, in your criteria for looking at list building, you talked about like damage potential and then multipliers. Um, you know, for Lannisters in particular, what do you see as some of their biggest damage potential units? Are there any units, whether they're Lannister or even neutrals being brought in that maybe people are sleeping on that, you know, can have a really high damage output if you're trying to blast through opponent's units? Uh yeah, the two the two units that I that I chose the the cutthroats and the pyromancers are two units available to Lannisters that I don't see a whole lot of people run, and cutthroats in particular, um, with a lot of these neutral players coming around, that that's not a surprise to them. Right. But it can be a surprise. <laughs> it can be a surprise to other players just how effective and how much pressure those cutthroats can create. So, I had kicked around the idea of cutthroats for a long time and i finally just pulled the trigger and just did it but if you think about the cards that Tyrion has the card that should jump out to you with cutthroats is delay orders so for those who don't know if a cutthroat attacks a unit that has not activated that round they become vulnerable and since that's not an order you can potentially attack them numerous times and make them vulnerable every single time so you have no reason not to spend the vulnerable token. Not, 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 not to mention they also have Vicious, right? <laughs> they, ha they have Vicious, yeah. And they, they've got an 8-6-4 attack profile that hits on three. So they're nasty in their own right. That vulnerable token just puts them over the top. Now, looking at Tyrion's card, Delay Orders, I think you can see where that's going. You've got the ability to, if you, once your opponent gets punched once, and it's like, uh, that was really bad. I was vulnerable, and they have Vicious. I just took a beating, so I'm going to activate. I'm in danger. Yes, I am in danger. And it's, it's like they can't go to the board, because if they go to the board, then they still haven't activated, and they might get punched a second time. Right. So they, they go to activate that unit. Well, I won't be vulnerable the next time, and maybe I'll turn to face so that you're not in my flank. And then you throw down delay orders, and there's not a whole lot they can do. They can't activate that unit of cutthroats. Or they can't activate the unit that's fighting the cutthroats, and then if the cutthroats go a second time, they're vulnerable. Right. So it creates oh. this huge amount of pressure because if you've got Varus controlling the board, it's like, well, I can take the swords, but Varus will block it, and then I might get smacked again. If I go to the board and activate them, he might have delay orders. So you create these mind games for your opponent. Like, what do I do? What's the good choice? Does he have the card? Does he not have the card? What's my best move here? And when you lay that card down, it, it can really start to, it can disrupt things really badly. So I, but I think cutthroats are good even without Tyrion um, because of the pressure that they create. And, and again, the neutral players know about this, but when you see a cutthroat sitting across from your unit, uh, you kind of feel obligated to activate that unit. And it only takes one time seeing a unit just evaporate in front of those cutthroats before you kind of learn that lesson <laughs> and, and yeah. you, you don't let them get that vulnerable token on top of their vicious. And then with uh, the ability to create panic tokens, it, it, they're so nasty. They're just nasty. And the things you also have your pyromancers in that list so that, you know, there's multiple threats that they've got to watch out for me. You know, you can set up kind of lose, lose situations where it's like, well, if I, the board state over here means these cutthroats are going to be cutting through this unit and maybe even lowering an activation for my opponent. Or I've got, you know, pyromancers or other, other threats on the board here. Yep, and that's, that's the big idea with the uh, basically pretty much all offense Tyrion list that I ran. You had the poor fellows who have defense by morale, 
and you have the knights who have a three plus defense save so they can kind of they can take a punch but um gregor only having four wounds i don't count him as much of a defensive guy i count him as a as a mobile threat so really just relying on those knights to to anchor a point and the rest of the army is there to kind of mop things up i mean it makes sense i'm looking at it um you know as not a skilled player it makes sense what you're saying with the poor fellows. I still, I still feel that like twinge of nervousness though, where I'm like, I, I, I know what guardsmen do, and then like I know they t- still take morale damage, but I'm, I'm used to that more, and I'm almost a little scared to put Tyrion in the poor fellows. But I think I'll just have to run that a few times and see, because you're right, they've got six plus armor, but really it's the morale and being able to heal them up is so useful. They're actually better on the offense. Well, no, five plus to hit. It's one one additional attack that five plus. That's not good. It's the actual auto wounds that are good. I, I think, Chase, it's uh, it's the high morale, uh, which plays into a couple of scenarios that are really popular at tournaments. So if you can imagine Tyrion's unit of poor fellows surrounding themselves with one of those uh, high-powered threats, and he picks up a token in a dance with dragons, mm-hmm. he's, not, he's not dropping that token ever. Uh, it would take a lot of resources to get the poor fellows to fail a panic test. And they're actually a whole lot harder to kill to a man than you think. And I, I think just like you said, you're, you're going to have to, you're going to have to push yourself and give it a try. And I yeah. think you'll, I think you'll be surprised at how well they survive. Cause if, if you think of the, the wealth zone, which isn't a bad zone for Lannisters to claim right. at all, he's going to heal three immediately when you claim the zone. And then if you activate him, He's healed another three, and that's half of the unit. Man, that's, yeah, that's actually really good. I mean, I know from even experience as a Free Folk player, like, I hate when I'm like, oh, this is just a, a poor fellow unit. I'll just claw them down. They're not that big a deal. We'll drag it down. But it's like they just sit there forever, bogging you down. And I know they're more efficient into, like, something that's going to be really impacted by the auto wounds, but their survivability there can be surprising. I guess I always just get, I mean, it's you're always got to worry about getting mulched by some super unit, but... That's about the positioning more than anything else. Yep. And I, I think by my calculation, um, roughly, it's going to take about 14 to 15 hits to bring that unit down from full health. Yeah. Now, now, if they gang up on that unit, like they, they hit it with knights or uh, Tully Cab or something like that, and then they shoot into it, mm-hmm. they're probably going to die. But at the same time, if they focused so much into that unit you should yeah, be there your five point unit yeah yep. took <laughs> yep. 13 you, 14 points worth of attacks yep and you should be there to counter punch either the units that have charged Tyrion's unit or on the other side of the board where they're unbalanced you should be able to tilt it back into your favor just by using Tyrion as bait the other advantages to the poor fellows are movement five over the lannister guards movement four yeah that, and that's that, huge right it ends up mattering a lot it does. And then the other thing is um, they're a perfect unit for uh, to, to operate as Tyrion's battery, as I call it, the unit that's going to take no actions and is going to give their action to someone else. Because because if you read the cunning ploy, the the I'm sorry, the friendly unit who's giving up their action to another friendly unit yep. still activates. So upon activation, uh, those poor fellows can heal and then they can pass their action onto another unit. But they get a heal. They get a heal no matter what. Yeah, yeah. That's so amazing. Yeah. So you're not actually passing on their heal, and you're just creating this proper tar pit. And a lot of times, I found they they either get frustrated trying to kill it, and they kind of abandon the mission, or <laughs> <Yeah>. they can <laughs> they can end up stuck the whole game. Yeah. 
those poor spear wives. Now, when you're when you're playing in the event, um, how are you guys doing terrain? And was there any terrain that you were thinking about when you had this list? Yeah, we did do chosen terrain. Um, that was inspired by um, some of the TTS events. I kind of fell back in love with chosen terrain, and then you mentioned Lockie Carter, uh, mm-hmm. and we spoke with him as well, and he he sold me on the terrain as well. Um, it's like, yeah, I'm totally buying this. You build the list and you've got terrain pieces in mind when you bring these units and it ends up being really important. So I was completely sold on, on chosen terrain as well. And we agreed to do, do the chosen terrain. And, uh, with my lists, um, actually in the high sparrow list, I had corpse piles in mind. Because oh, yeah. I had the poor fellows who don't, I mean, a minus one to <laughs> a poor care. fellow unit. They yeah. do, it doesn't matter classes, much. Yep. And they can automatically trigger a panic test if they use fanatical zeal because they cause wounds from the attack. Mm-hmm. So even if you whiff with those horrible bludgeon <laughs> weapons, you're still forcing that panic test. Um, and that that's going to multiply the damage that they do because um, potentially they're failing a panic test. And then uh, I also had considered bogs and... Uh, in the right situation, I like forests a lot if I'm playing against ranged units mm-hmm. because I, I I really like the idea of pushing them to, you know, minus one to hit. And you can hide a unit like your poor fellows behind a forest and then their arrows are a lot less effective. Yeah. So uh, like Kranigman trappers came to mind or the trackers, I'm sorry, because they hit on fours. And if you can be behind a forest and push them to fives, even with their rerolls, um, I don't think I need to tell you five plus to hit, even with rerolls, is going to be pretty terrible. So yeah, I've been there. <laughs> uh, so uh, the other big thing then I want to just address is Gregor could gain the mountain that rides. So that's your four point cavalry solo. Uh, he's got cleaving blows, so critical blows, charged enemies become panicked, and defenders don't get defense saves. How are you running him? Like what what sort of strategies or things are you keeping in mind? Is he just a kind of a support flanker? Is he hunting ab- wolves? What is the, what's the idea a, there? A thousand percent. I used him as a support unit. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know that he, that he has weaknesses having four wounds. He is one failed panic test away from disappearing. And even with a two plus defensive save, I know that he is very killable because they only need to get four wounds. So, Something in his flank with a vulnerable token and a, a high number of attacks, he's very killable. Sundering with a vulnerable, uh, especially in the flank, he's very killable. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that can just make him completely disappear. Um, and then interestingly enough, playing against that great John Umber list the last round, I had no intention of sending Gregor into anything unless I knew that it was going to die because I was afraid of Lash Out, yep. which does D3 wounds plus one wound for each destroyed rank. If you're an Umber unit, it counts as a three. So if he pops one rank of an Umber unit and they have that card, he's dead automatically. It's four wounds. So he is definitely not um, an Alpha Striker, unless the situation calls for that. Like If he's going to be able to go pin down a unit of Heavy Cavalry, Mm-hmm. then then that's fine but if they've got other supporting units nearby that can get in his flank uh it's just a bad idea but so, that's another one of those like calculated risks where you know you've really got to weigh the situation before you commit yep. it you've got to weigh the situation and if you see that counter charge coming at his flank 
you can look at his two plus defensive save and and that's awesome. But uh, uh, Knights or Tully Cab coming into his flank, I feel like he's going to pop. So, well, so you know, and as things start to open up again, we're getting people back, you know, in stores here. Um, <clears throat> what's what's on the what's in the cards for Brett Landry here? Are you going to be sticking with you know running more Lannister events? Are you going to slowly start to move your way into Targaryens? What what does the future hold in store? I have a little pet project that I'm going to be working on right now. Um, it is a Night's Watch list that I believe has never been seen. I don't believe it's been run. It's a very, very, very tricky list to run. But I think it's going to be very rewarding. And I think... I think our good friend Ron can appreciate it too. It uses some oh elements boy. that he's really. Oh boy! <laughs> and uh, I think actually, since the the lists are due to be submitted, I'm debuting it in this uh, TTS uh, League of Friends, uh, the, the, the four person team. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to spoil the list, Chase. I like Uh-oh, you. Oh, here we go. I'm going to spoil the list. Uh, or, or do we need to make a pact to not let Ron Krasnick ever get his whole hand on this? Like, we got to keep these uh, top <laughs> Night Squad players. Like, what the hell? Oh, my God. No, just kidding, Ron. We wouldn't. What are, you, uh, what are you thinking here? What do you got? All right. It is uh, Otho Yarwick Commander. Okay. Let me, um, let me build this as we're going here, just so I can stay on the same page here. So we got Otho Yarwick Commander. Okay. Bowen Marsh. Corn Halfhand. Ugh. <laughs> Corn <laughs> Halfhand. Veterans of the Watch. And you he, love he, your veterans, though. You're I like love that is uh, that is okay. <laughs> veterans of the Watch. Four units of Ranger Trackers. Four units. That four units of Ranger Trackers is insane, and that's forty points. That's forty uh, points on the nose. <laughs> what? Okay, so man, okay, as someone who's been like trying to figure out and like get better at using Outriders, <clears throat> coming from a faction that has no cavalry. Walk me through this. So what's the plan here? You're going to be, everything is going to be vulnerable forever. Everything is vulnerable all day. The, the interesting thing is the ranger trackers are so fast. Yeah. That, and they've got a melee attack, unlike, unfortunately, the Dothraki Outriders. Yeah. The Dothraki Outriders can't do what the ranger trackers can do. But if you make something like a dire wolf vulnerable, yep. and you charge into it, six attacks hitting on fours, you've got a really good chance to do it when you make it vulnerable. So ranger trackers are so fast. They should be able to get to some of those uh, units. But my the bigger plan is um, core and half hand is there if things get out of hand. Mm-hmm. So for example, if I've got just this big nasty unit that I, I don't think I can deal with, I can core and half hand them uh, and then basically circle the wagons with these units of ranger trackers and just repeatedly shoot into them, and it should take them off the table. I've got the other ranger trackers who can, um, if I load up one flank, I'm probably giving away too much, that's fine. (laughs) If you load up up one flank with these super mobile guys, you can send one unit in to pin the enemy down, and then you can surround it with the other units and shoot it. Yeah. And... So and you're using got, kind of a serrated enhancement or precision enhancement, mighty enhancement, those cards to, to push out extra damage. Exactly. The idea is to get serrated enhancement, which is why I've got Bowen Marsh and Othel. Those two go hand in hand so well because Othel lets you tutor one of his cards out of your deck. Mm. And then you have to, sh- uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry. You want to do Bowen Marsh first because you get to look at the two cards in your hand. And then one of them has to go to the bottom of your deck to disappear forever. 
uh, a lot of times with Bow and Marsh, the downside is you pull the Horn that Wakes the Sleepers and Shield of the Realms of Men, and it's right. like, oh, crap, I need both of these cards. Well, Othel lets you tutor a card out of the deck, and then you can shuffle the deck. So you can use that to your advantage. For example, you do what I just mentioned, and you've banished one of those cards to the bottom of the deck. Well, now you use Othel into your main deck to pull a card out, so you get to shuffle the deck back up. This if is you... why nobody likes you, Night's Watch players. Let me just point this out. <laughs> you guys with your cards and dunk. Yeah. Yep. But <laughs> if, if you pulled, say, for example, Take the Black, and you just really don't need that card, you stick it to the bottom of the deck, well, now Othel can just go pull one out of the discard pile and not shuffle that deck. So you have a lot of options with your cards running those two together. Well, this is terrifying, but I'm also excited to see how that plays out. And interesting here, so the Veterans of the Watch, just trying to think, there's no way to, I mean, I guess you really need them to be that rock just in case. I was like, is there any way you can squeeze more points into this list? But I guess you've probably thought that through already. I thought about running like Sworn Brothers with a Watch Captain. Just yep. to just to have another offensive unit, but I just see the veterans um, until now. The thing with half hand is his influence is good on its own. I would pay four points to take the half hand just for the plus one movement, plus one attack dice all of the time, because with with the vow cards you can really turn that unit of veterans into a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. So you've basically got a unit attachment in the form of an NCU. Yeah. And then with the veterans, you've got a unit that can really hold down a center and they can be the unit too. at movement six. They can go charge something and pin it down. And then your ranger trackers will then be able to shoot into that combat. And the veterans having a morale of five, uh, they don't really mind too much. Uh, they shouldn't taking that panic test for shooting into combat. And I think that's going to be the key to the list is getting stuff tied up with the veterans or with other units of trackers and then forcing those panic tests on your opponent and just making them repeatedly roll defense saves with a vulnerable token. I think once you can start to swing the activation favor to your advantage, it should really, really, really snowball for your opponent, and it might be a really bad day for them. Yeah, I mean, just the ability to be able to pick off their units and, you know, never underestimate how how, uh, tough cavalry units are. I mean, it's still 12 wounds, but they've only got, you know, it's six wounds per rank instead of, Four. exactly yeah and, man and then it's a super mobile army and uh ranger trackers can i mean when they're almost dead they can they can boot scoot and boogie across the field i mean yeah if you get oh. watcher on the wall on them you've effectively added three inches to the total movement they can make so they can maneuver mm-hmm. seven march 14 so there's a lot of you can use the vows with this list to make it even nastier than what it looks like on paper because uh like i um, watch her on the wall again being able to control the maneuver zone and make a free retreat to start your action mm-hmm. that unit of uh ranger trackers that you've charged in to pin a unit down now they can retreat d6 plus seven and then scoot across the board and go do it to somebody else so it's going to be tricky but <laughs> oh, God. I, I think playing it looks the- also fun though, right? And I feel like as you're testing through more, like you're definitely going to have some amazing moments in games for sure. It's going to be fun because it's going to be challenging because they 
the not, the ranger trackers can explode so quickly. I know. I was just thinking, like, not. I don't think I have the mental capacity to run this. So, like, if it was like an event where like running like five games, I'd be I'd be just completely mentally spent. It's hard enough as it is for me to get used to cavalry. Always, it's this gonna be looks, fun. Yeah, it looks amazing. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to to more of your exploits and uh, and future successes. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It is always a pleasure to come here and talk to you. So stay safe. And in the meantime, I hope you get your miniatures on the table. <laughs>